It's Monday. Welcome to 2021. It's the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and with me today is not Brianne Fallon, who's feeling a little bit under the weather this week. We wish her a swift recovery, but in fact, Andy Alexander, editor and contributor to the RSP. Welcome, Andy. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to join you today, though I am sad we won't be hearing from Brianne, and we do hope she will be feeling better soon. Yeah, absolutely. You and I are meeting at a really amazing moment in American history. Right now, as we're speaking, they are concluding the two hours of debate that followed the introduction of the second impeachment of President Donald J. Trump one week before his presidency is scheduled to end with the uh, election of Joe Biden and his inauguration uh, on the 20th, which comes two days after this episode will be released. This episode is our Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, episode, and, and it is a doozy. It's a doozy because it deals directly with some of the critical issues that our nation is struggling with today, issues that feel for younger Americans who may not have lived through the civil rights struggle like they are absolutely as alive as they have ever been in the past. Andy, how are you feeling about all of this? Did you manage to catch some of some of the, the coverage today? Oh, absolutely. I have been tuned in since the beginning. And, you know, I think that what you've said is exactly spot on. Today, your interview with Dr. Eddie Glaude is just so relevant for everything that has been going on this month for the upcoming inauguration. And so I'm going to turn it to you here with your interview, The Lie at the Heart of America with Eddie S. Glaude. Take it away. My name is David McConaughey, and today it's my great honor to be joined by Dr. Eddie S. Glaude, Jr., he is James S. McDonald, Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, a former president of the American Academy of Religion, a scholar of African American religion. Dr. Glaude's published works include An Uncommon Faith, Democracy in Black, In a Shade of Blue, and my favorite, Exodus. I always use it with my students. They love it. Today, he joins us to celebrate the publication of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project, Dr. Glaude. It is my pleasure to join you, David. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. We are we are in, in December, snowstorm approaching, but thankfully, some of the things that were so uncertain over the past couple of months seem like they are they're headed towards political resolution. The reason that I bring that up is at the heart of your book is the life of James Baldwin and his later writing. Uh, he was one of America's most celebrated mid-century uh, authors, an extremely powerful voice on um, understanding the American condition as a set of practices, which you say were built to sustain the lie of the value gap. Can you explain at the outset what the lie is and how it relates to what you have called the value gap? Yeah, the lie is, you know, the story we tell ourselves that um, ensure our, our virtue. It's the kind of general architecture that protects this, this notion that white people ought to matter more than others. And that's what the value gap is at its heart, right? That, that is, a certain life is valued more than others, and that valuation is evident in our, or evidenced in our social, political, and economic arrangements. 
And so we tell ourselves um, lies about what we've done in order to, in some ways, secure our innocence, which is so critical to American exceptionalism, as it were. So there's a line that Baldwin wrote in an essay entitled The White Problem in 1964. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, uh, when, when those who founded the country, right, uh, had chattel, they had these people that, that were slaves and they, they explicitly um, said that they were founding a Christian nation, and, but they had to deal with the fact of these chattel who played such an important role in their lives. And so Baldwin says uh, they had to say that, in effect, that these were not men and women, because if they were not men and women, then no crime would have been committed. And then here's the line. He said, that lie is the basis of our present trouble. So it's the lie that we've told ourselves about our founding, the lie that we tell ourselves that we are an example of democracy achieved, the lie that that tells us that, you know, uh, we're the shining city on the hill, all with the aim in part, not only to secure our virtue, but also to hide the depth of our vice, if that makes sense. Yeah, you, you really describe this as a, a, an arc that is infused in in every era of uh, American life. Uh, there's there's a moment when you kind of describe it as from Winthrop to Reagan, right? This this uh, a city on a hill that gets converted into a shining yeah. city on a hill. Um, if I present John Winthrop and the Arabella and all, all this stuff from early America, and I and I say to them, look, you can see the the arc. Of of this thread lot running through through it, if I present that in a religious studies classroom to my introductory students, how how should I explain how religion is bound up in preserving and supporting uh, the the lie? Well, I mean, I mean that's a wonderful question. In some ways, it's you know the American project is imagined in some ways as as a sacred project of sorts, right? This is the new Canaan. This is um, uh, uh, an Aaron in the wilderness, as it were. So there is this uh, religious language that's at the heart of uh, uh, our early imaginings of, of who we are as a nation, right? It's this um, sacred project. So, um, and how that language uh evidences itself over time in different epochs or under different material conditions is really important because it sacralizes, right, power relations, right? It gives a sense that American exceptionalism under all of these different conditions, right, continues to uh, be a mission, right? Continues to be uh, an extension of that Aaron in the wilderness, as it were. So I say that, you know, the lie is the through line along with the value gap is the through line of Americanism, but it's going to look differently in the context of slavery than it would in the context of Jim Crow, than it would in the context of a black man in the white house. But at the heart of it all is the ongoing valuation of particular bodies, right? And that valuation leads to the distribution of advantage and disadvantage. And that valuation is part of the sacred mission of, of the redeemer nation, Right, as it were, all of this is kind of built into uh, the way in which American American nationalism is sacralized, right? Um, and and religious language is so critical here. I mean, we could call it civil religion, although we don't 
really use that phrase as much as we used to. I, I don't know. I'm seeing I'm seeing it a lot more <laughs> <laughs> in the past couple of years. It seems like it's just on the tip of everybody's tongue. Right. But 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 then again, as you say, as part of the through line, m- making it a civil religion, as, as numerous people have argued, gives it an authenticity that it shouldn't have. Right. It 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 justifies it by giving it legal authority it it says well if this is religion then this is really civil religion and so the supreme court says things like um uh, a prayer at the the opening of the senate for instance Mm -hmm. is is purely symbolic right it strips all that power and and what i read your work and your reading of baldwin is of is doing is restoring the lies affect its ability to create authenticity out of those moments, right? That it, that that abstraction, if we call it a lie, then we recognize the abstraction for a rhetorical move, right? It's just simply pivoted away mm. from, from things. And it's, it, it's doing, and then, then, then once we, once we make that move, as you rightly described, now we can, we can begin to track its workings, right? We can begin to see its effects and consequences, and it's precisely the way in which the lie hides behind a certain, you know, self-understanding, a certain uh, nationalist ideology, um, uh, hides behind um, uh, a ready-at-hand understanding of the American project that we fail to track how it how it's doing its work over time and space and generations. Um, and there are particular people in this place called America, who've had to bear the brunt of that of those lies and continue to have to bear the brunt of those lies and what those lies uh, demand of us, it seems to me. So how, how does Baldwin's particular life story and his body of work help illuminate the lie in a way that everything else seems designed to obscure it? So why, why is he why is he bring the light where where otherwise we would be shadowed or, or you know, unable to see? You know that's a great question in a sense, right? Because you know even when you like when Dr. King, for example, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a speech at uh, the hundredth birthday celebration of W. E. B. Du Bois, he invoked the lie. Uh, even when you read Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk, he invoked the lie. I'm using their language. So there's something about Baldwin, right? It's almost as if he could not be digested whole by the country. And I think this is why I'm so attracted to um, the later Baldwin. So there's this ongoing insistence to bear witness, to allow suffering to speak to tell the truth, no matter the cost. Um, and it cost him a lot. Um, and I think, you know, even as, you know, we were moving into the decadence of the 80s, the last decade of his life, um, Baldwin was still bearing witness to the suffering, right? As Black Americans were, as African Americans were making their way into the Cosby era, we wouldn't say that now. Like, Baldwin is still you know, laying bare the contradictions of the country and the contradictions of this rising Black middle class. So I think he is, he's not unique in this regard, but he's certainly uh, uh, 
a model of a certain kind of excellence with regards to this. Uh, he is uh, relentless in, in the work of exposing right, the failure of the country to look its ghastly failures, to, to use those words, the refusal of the country to look its ghastly failures in the face. It's part of his, his ministry, as it were, if you want to call it that. I think I think you have and do call it <laughs> his his ministry. He calls it his ministry as well. His his mission, his calling. Right. There's all of this religious language bound up in in how Baldwin thinks about and presents his critique of America. Uh, since half of our audience is is not. Uh, uh, not within America, <laughs> uh, in Europe and in Australia. Can can you say a little bit about Baldwin's religious background that might that might help us kind of get a footing under where this kind of language comes from? Sure. So let's let's do a little quick biography. You know, Baldwin is born in Harlem in August of 1924. Uh, so he's born, you know, five years before the Great Depression, which means he comes of age in Depression Harlem. Right. And and so and he's not in Sugar Hill, which is a certain kind of black upper middle class space. Baldwin is what in what we call in the US the hood. Um, his stepfather and his mother, his stepfather is a migrant from Louisiana. His mother is also part of that great wave of migration from the South. She's from the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, Baldwin is uh, he doesn't know his father. His mother meets his stepfather, who is an itinerant, pre- itinerant preacher. Uh, he doesn't have a church. He just moves from church to church every Sunday. And, and it's Baptist, but Baldwin is attracted to uh, kind of Pentecostalism, right? You know, uh, the gods of the metro- Black metropolis, as it were, mm-hmm. as Arthur Fawcett described them. Um, and so he uh, uh, is reared within the Pentecostal tradition and, and at the age of 14 becomes a preacher. Right, fireside Pentecostal church, you know, in in Harlem, right? And but you know, he says in this really dramatic moment, so typical of Baldwin, you know, he read Dostoevsky and all all hell broke loose, right? Uh, in terms of his faith, you know, he kept reading, he kept reading. Um, so there's a sense in which the relationship with the father, growing up in a, re- a, a pretty religiously strict household. Uh, making his way to Pentecostalism, as he describes it in the Fire Next Time, a book published in 1963, which turns out, as he says in in retrospect, to be his gimmick. You know, he retreats into the church in order to come to terms with his own desires, you know, physical desires, his own sexuality, uh, and the the threat, the dangers of the street, as it were, of the the alleyways and the like. Um, But he says he left the church, but the church never left him. So, you know, when you think about Baldwin's prose, his writing, you know, you have to do this, this, this extraordinary excavation, right, work, right? You have to try to track down his bibliography. And not only do you see Henry James, you know, you see Marcel Proust, um, you know, you're going to find the Henry James Bible. You're, I mean, uh, the, uh, the King James Bible, you're going to... You're going to hear the Black homiletic tradition uh, in in the way he writes, the rhythm of his sentences, even those Jamesian never-ending sentences, right? So, you know, he'll say, you know, the church, he left the church, but the church never left him. In fact, his last essay, 
published in 1987 in, in Playboy magazine, is entitled To Crush a Serpent, where he offers this amazing sermon on salvation and love. It's amazing. I see a very strong parallel between the way that you describe Baldwin having been raised religiously, so deeply invested in in that life, and then leaving that life with his own geographical journey, where he left the United States for Europe and uh, was in <laughs> numerous places in, in Europe writing and trying to, to figure out if if religion never left him, when he went to, to Europe and to um, Turkey, was it? Istanbul, yeah. Oh, Istanbul. Um, that that America never left him in that same way. So what is it about distance, the distance from his religious youth and the distance yeah. from America that really set him up for that? You know, there's a wonderful moment in the beginning of Nobody Knows My Name, you know, the, the volume published right after uh, The Fire Next Time. And, and you know, he, he has this line where he says, in America, the color of my skin had stood between myself and me. In Europe, that barrier was down. Nothing is more desirable than to be released from an affliction. But nothing is more frightening than to be divested of a crutch. It turned out that the question of who I was was not solved because I had removed myself from the social forces which menaced me. Anyway, these forces had become interior, and I had dragged them across the ocean with me. The question of who I was had at least become a personal question, and the answer was to be found in me. So he left the United States. He left America in 1948 because, he, as he said in The Price of the Ticket, he said he had to leave. Either he was going to kill somebody or somebody was going to kill him. The rage that was in his father, his stepfather, was now evident in him. And so, you know, the, the desire or the demand to live this bourgeois life, Baldwin was supposed to get married. He was actually engaged. You know, he's going to work at the, supposed to work at the post office and, you know, this sort of thing. But he threw that, you know, the proposed wedding ring into the Hudson River uh, and found himself in Greenwich Village and, and you know, uh, fell in love and 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 then found himself in Paris. Um, so he needed the distance, right? It's, I call it in the book and elsewhere, right? He yeah. needed the space because the ongoing uh, wounding, it's like, you know, these uh, little cuts of, as he talks about in the uses of the blues, right? You get this, this ongoing assault that is evidenced in the disregard of the society for who you are, the, 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 the denial of dignity and standing and how that is evidenced every single day in your life. Um, and so Baldwin said he needed the space in order to think about this bohemoth. He had to get the distance. So he didn't see himself as an exile. He didn't like the word. He saw himself as a transatlantic commuter, someone who was moving back and forth. So Paris became the space. He found a home eventually in St. Paul de Vence. But, you know, he was in London. He was in Istanbul. You know, he was in, spent some time in Israel. I mean, uh, you know, at a kibbutz. I mean, Baldwin is a fascinating figure, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the global landscape. But he's always thinking about, you know, home this place, the place that shaped him. 
I I get a sense that there's something that simply refuses to be assimilated, right? That that his his position in the U.S. meant that that he was trying to speak truth that others did not want to hear and that maybe they were not capable of, of saying and that, and that when he left, he felt freer to say those things or, or found himself in a place that allowed him to say those things. But he couldn't be, and I know that you've written that, that Paris couldn't hold him in the same way. Right. And, and that he eventually became, <laughs> he lost the the glitter of of Paris. It became it became dull dull for him. Uh, wh- what what do you think that it was that that refused to be assimilated that that he saw? Was it was it simply his his rootedness in in home or family? Like why didn't he simply stay in Paris and never come back? Right or stay in Istanbul and and, and never <laughs> and never return again? Well, you know he's you know he's he's an, he's an artist. At, at, at his heart, right? And so he's trying to find his voice. So, you know, he's he's writing Go Tell It on the Mountain and, and he's stuck. And, you know, it's not until he starts listening to those blues albums, listening to Bessie Smith and the like, that he hears the language, right? That he dreams in, that he that he hears the language that he needs to f- to figure out how to translate on the page. Um you know, he longed for, 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 for the folks he loved, you know, his brothers and sisters, his mother, um, the sense of connection, right? So, um, again, Baldwin is never, he, and, and he says in Nobody Knows My Name, he says, I didn't trade the American fantasy for the French one. Yeah. Right? He's not, he's not naive that, you know, America's ugliness is unique to, it, to, to itself, right? The ugliness takes shape and form you know, throughout the West, right? And he sees it in the Algerians and, and the depth of the bloody violence between the French and the Algerians, right? So even as they're romanticizing the, you know, the music and, and popular culture of Black folk in France, he understands that whiteness is still, still obtains there. So I think at the end of the day, as an artist, he's trying to find his voice. And that voice is, I think, David, um, well, I don't think I know, is is in, is entirely of this place, right? It's entirely of this place, and he's because Baldwin is spending a lifetime trying to figure out the American riddle, you know. Uh, One of the things that that I know that I stress in the classroom is the artificiality of categories, mm-hmm. how they how they do so much work for us. Yeah. I know Russell McCutcheon's. Um, a great little introductory essay to the study of religion cites the uh, the tomato Supreme Court case, right? But we do uh, sports examples in my class. Is it a, is it, is is sports religion? Well, it depends on your definition. Right? Mm-hmm. One of one of the things that that I sense in the way that you write about Baldwin, when you identify him presenting America as an identity that we take on, is that as a category that that category is really fungible. Right? It does does the, the such a powerful work sustaining the lie but it, but at the same time you argue and i think baldwin argues that that even with the lie embedded in that identity that there is still a kernel there that can be pushed it can eventually push the lie back out of of that identity uh, how 
as a category when we treat America like that. So it's not the redeemer nation. It's not the innocent nation. It's not God's chosen nation. It's not the Christian nation. I got my Richard Hughes on the the shelf behind me. Um, how, how How do we work with a category that is so expansive like that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to do, you know, I mean, one simple way to respond is is simply say, you know, tell the truth about who we are and what we've done. And that involves, you know, kind of, um, you know, the sorts of stories we tell. So, you know, just, you know, you, we are this, we are this country. We're, we're, no, we're, we're no one else. We're, this is who we are. Um, and what does that involve? What does that entail? And all of its ugliness and all of its beauty, right? And so part of, you know, I take it that the work of, say, the 1619 Project is is something like this, right? So what would it mean for us to tell the story from, from the beginning, with the beginning as 1619 as opposed to 1776 or, you know, Jamestown as opposed to Plymouth Rock, right? And 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 those aren't origin stories. Those are those are beginnings, right? It's not an origin narrative. And and you know, as Edward Said would say, the you know, the problem of beginnings is the beginning of the problem. So when we start with the the 1619 date, what do we start? What comes into view? Um, America was, you know, a corporation before it was a country. Oh, okay. Um uh, indentured servants, white indentured servants. Okay, class distinction. Okay, good. Uh, native peoples. Oh, they're present. Um, slaves. Oh, okay. And failure. Right. All of that comes into view if you begin there, as opposed to you know the narrative of Plymouth Rock is you know or the myth of Plymouth Rock, as it were. Yeah. So so that beginning orients you differently. To, to to who you take yourself to be as 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 individuals who happen who inhabit this space. So um how do we navigate this behemoth? You know, for Baldwin it's just tell the truth about what we've done, which because that that doing shapes who we take ourselves to be. It has and it, it actually con- constrains our aspirations about who we can be in some way. One of the instances of that truth telling uh that re- listeners to the rsp will know that we uh brianne and i have talked about in at least two different episodes is the legacy museum oh, yeah. uh, more colloquially known as the lynching museum for those um but the national memorial for peace and justice uh that is in montgomery alabama um you write about it in connection with baldwin's re- journey to the South and, and learning uh, of the South. Can, can you share a little bit about the ways in which that excavation for Baldwin of the South uh, connects to your own experience of visiting the Legacy Museum? Yeah, you know, Baldwin says, you know, remember he's a child of the South. He's that first generation of Southern migrants to the North, right? He's that first generation born and raised, but you can imagine what they ate in the house, the sound of the language, right? The culture in the household, as it were, was deeply Southern. Um, And when he came back from uh, Paris for the first time, you know, um, he, he knew he had to, 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 to return to that space. Why? Because remember, I said Baldwin spends his entire life trying to figure out the American riddle. And the answer to that riddle, in my view, is in the South. 
it's it's not the it's not the Midwest it's, as Imani Perry would argue in her new book. It's not the Midwest that the heartland of the country, the South is, right? In so many ways. And so Baldwin says he ran, you know, he ran to the South. He, in other words, he ran towards his fear. He feared that region. Um, and in some in so many ways, when you go to the Legacy Museum, when you go to the National Memorial down there, you see why, right? Because to my mind, it's not a story, a triumphant story that they're trying to tell in the museum. It's not a story that resolves itself in the greatness of the country. Rather, it's a confrontation with the brutality, the bloody uh, history of the country that, that saturates literally the soil of the place. And so it is demanding a kind of reckoning with our dead and what we have done to produce these bodies in some ways. And so this, this, this encounter, this um, insistence on confronting the brutality of, of our way of living that has made this possible. It's like what William James says in, in, in one of his essays, it is the bitterness at the bottom of the cup, right? Um, that becomes the occasion for a different kind of imagining. So Baldwin has to go south, right, in order to answer the riddle. And it's there that we confront who we are. And it's also there that we relentlessly evade who we are, right, over and over again. You know, and you get this, you know, because Baldwin is like in the South, there's race and sex and power. All of this is all intertwined, I mean, intermingled. And, you know, Malcolm would say, as long as you're south of the Canadian border, you're in the South. But he's talking about this particular region for a moment, for, for, for a reason. So I think uh, I'm rambling a bit, but as a, as a, as a, as a son of the South, um, I, I honestly believe if we figure it out, home, the nation might very well be set free. I'm so struck by the repeated calls to imagine differently. I, I, I evoke similar language in my courses, trying to simply upend those big, big tropes. One of the formative works for me was uh, Leotard's work on, on Meninaires and simply defining postmodernism as incredulity towards Meninaires, these bigs. How can we trust these big stories? And, and in part, I see a tension there in your work mm -hmm. between, between the power of imagination, but also its tenacity when it opposes us, how, how dug in it is. Um, so are, are you positioning it as competing imaginaries? Is this a nested? Like if, if we were, if I'm with you and I'm, mm. and I'm really with you, I want to throw this book at all my students, right? <laughs> if, if I'm with you on that, the, the question is, can I simply combat imagination with imagination? Right. Cause, cause the, the media experts tell us that when, you know, a lie promulgates through the web, you can't simply just th throw the truth at it, right? Like that doesn't, it doesn't displace the lie. It doesn't upend the lie. So, so for just imaginary versus imaginary, I, I, I find it frustrating to try to operationalize that, right? How, how does one replace the other? Well, you know, to me, the imagination is key to, 
to set up the conditions for the possibility of fundamental transformation. If one can't imagine an otherwise, then one can't mobilize and organize for an otherwise. So, so, so it seems to me, right, and I use this example, you know, um, I use it often, actually. Um, imagine uh, an enslaved woman who knows nothing but slavery. That is her experience. Um, to be a means to someone else's ends. And yet there's a moment where she looks into the eyes of uh, a man who says that she loves, that he loves her. And she sees a flip of love. She sees the glimmer of love in his eyes. Or she hears the sound of innocence of children playing outside the cabin, knowing that it's probably fleeting Right, but it's a sound of children playing, and and both experiences, right, break open this relation of domination, right. Both experiences give space for the imagination to to intervene, and so it's in that experience that Howard, you know, that Charles Long's formulation that Christianity you know, allows one to see beyond the opacity of one's condition, right? Or the slave was able to see beyond the opacity of her condition, right? And, and so part of what I'm, but that doesn't undermine the relation of domination. That would be silly, right, to make that claim. So part of what I argue and begin again is that the imagination uh, is absolutely, we have to figure, we have to imagine ourselves differently to break free from this frame. But underneath that, or alongside that, or following that, right, is the necessary work of, of organizing, of doing policy work, of, of, of engaging in, you know, challenging power, right? In democracy in Black, I call it, you know, echoing King and Nietzsche, our need for the revolution of values, right? And that is, we have to up in how we um, view government. We have to upend how we view white people, and we have to upend what we value, and we do that through grassroots mobilization and, and, and organizing. So, the imagination, you know, shorthand, David, is is it just sets the conditions for the possibility of fundamental transformation. It's not, it's not the end. It's necessary, but it's damn sure not sufficient. For for those that would like to dive into the primary material, the primary sources of Baldwin. Can we end on a recommendation that you, that you would give readers who may be unfamiliar with Baldwin's work and would like to join you in accessing his, his telling of how America can imagine itself uh, more powerfully, more oriented towards justice and end the, the value gap. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm teaching Baldwin in the spring, actually. So I'm teaching his nonfiction, and and I should say that much of what I what I what I focus on and, and begin again uh, is uh, the nonfiction work, and it's because I think he's one of the greatest essayists we've produced in the West. Um, he's the inheritor of Emerson, in my view. Um, um, he just brings Emerson across the tracks, um, but that's not to diminish his fiction. I don't want to. So, but I would suggest to 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 your listeners that they get the Library of America edition of Baldwin's nonfiction collected works. This is what I use as the anchor in my course. 
Uh, and I think it's important because you you begin with notes of a native son, right? The first book of nonfiction, and then you read, you just read from the beginning to the end. And I think it's important to read from the beginning to the end, you know, because you see the continuity of theme, but then you see where he shifts the accents. Suddenly, accent to gu becomes accent to, accent to grave or something, you know, and and how it or the change in breath and something shifts in terms of the meaning of 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 of, of, of the words. Now, the only problem with uh, the Library of America edition, edition, which was edited by the late Tony Morrison, by the way, is that it doesn't include the last book, and that is the Evidence of Things Not Seen, which is a book about the Atlanta child murders, which most people dismiss, but which I think is just sheer genius at the level of form and the boldness of his critique of Black faces who hold power. Um, it's it's a, an enormously relevant book to read in our times right now. But I say, you know, begin there and just read him from begin, beginning to end. If, if we are all so fortunate to do that, we will, we will be right there with you. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Claude. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. You take care and stay safe and have a great holiday. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You too. Now, Andy, a bit of personal information about you as we pick up. Welcome back, listeners. Andy, you are from Montgomery, Alabama, where the Legacy Museum, where the National Memorial for Peace and Justice that uh, Dr. Glaude and I talked about uh, is located. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences visiting the museum? Absolutely, Dave. That was actually a really interesting point, I thought, that Dr. Glaude brought up during your interview, because I think he made a really excellent point in addressing the ways in which the Legacy Museum confronts the brutal history of slavery in the U.S. And being from Montgomery, Alabama, and the heart of the civil rights movement, there's a lot that we learn about it growing up in our history classes, of course, but seeing a representation of this part of American history that sort of tackles that brutality and that violence head on in this way is very unusual, even for, maybe especially for, Alabama. And I thought that the museum, as well as the the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is attached to it, just was a very powerful uh, and, and solemn representation of that to help any visitors, and, and there have been many, of course, confront that history and and really reckon with the past. And I think given what we've seen going on and what we discussed earlier, addressing that lie, like Dr. Glaude mentions, is a very crucial issue today in, in our current situation. I'm, I'm struck by the way that one of the central themes of the difference of opinion over the fitness for office of uh, President Trump, one of the differences is simply two different understandings of what the truth of these things are. It's a battle for the truth. One of the most frustrating things that that occurred on January 6th was when President-elect Biden appeared and he said uh, in in his impromptu uh, address that this is not who we are. And I have to say, as, as an American religious historian, 
someone who works with this material. And after this interview with Eddie Glaude and, and uh, drawing on the work of James Baldwin, we know that this is who we are. And I was so deeply frustrated by, by the inability that we have at the highest levels of, of our nation on both sides of the aisle to, to reckon with that history and, and not simply in a, in an accusatory way, but in a way that, that changes hearts and minds. And so when you talk about the, the kind of palpable experience of, of visiting the monument, I have not been to this monument yet. Uh, but I have been to the Holocaust museums, uh, and memorials in, in Berlin. And, and one of the, the stunning things that, that is so different about the way that Germany has treated its dialogue about the Holocaust is that it's always there. It's always, uh, an, the open wound that must be addressed, that must be dealt with, that can never be forgotten, that must be overcome. And, and I find it really frustrating that, that the rhetoric of unity or the rhetoric of civility or these alternative imaginings about who we are project our better selves without reckoning with the, the stains of, of the injustices that we have done. And to go to the monument in Alabama and to, and to walk down the steps as the plinths rise above you representing lynched Americans, I can only imagine what a profound impact that has on, on it, on its guests. And I, and I wish, you know, it's always my hope in, in our recordings and our episodes that we can capture just a little bit of, of that kind of an emotional change because, uh, the difference of imagination about who we are as an Americans and what our country stands for it is, is the heart of our democracy. And if we can't come to an agreement about the ways in which we have been unjust towards Americans in the past and denied American uh, rights and, and uh, privileges to people that have lived here in the past, we, we cannot move forward uh, with that. So Andy, one of the things that I know that, that, that you've been working on um, is trying to develop a sense of, of your kind of future self as a scholar how do you think that you're going to approach the the issue of of these competing imaginaries? Like, how are you going to deal with things that appear or that are lies, right? That that appear in the rhetoric and the discourse that that, that, that you study. Well, I think a key aspect is to take very seriously the rhetoric that we are hearing and understand both the narratives which produce it and the narratives which it creates. Because if we don't think critically about the conversations that we're having, what sort of paths we're constructing in the stories that we tell and in the debates that are happening on the House floor at the Capitol, then we're not going to be contending with that lie that Dr. Glaude mentions. It's something that we can't overlook, and it's the exceptionalism that has been produced from this lie, from the obfuscation of certain aspects of our history, is something that we absolutely need to reckon with, at least as a burgeoning scholar in American religious history. To me, those are conversations that have to be had along racial lines, along gender, along class, because these are conversations that all of our students 
and future scholars are aware of. And it's our responsibility, I think, to bring these to the forefront of the classroom so that students can learn how to have productive and engaging critical conversations about what are very fraught and complicated conversations as we see now. And one of those skills I hope that we can teach in exploring these ideas is uh, a critical look at, at these discourses and, and the effects they have, not just for what we're studying in that moment, but for the country, for the rest of the world. I share those sentiments with you. For listeners that are still with us, we encourage you to join us next week when we will feature a current events discourse episode, which, since it will come uh, just uh, five or six days after the inauguration, will deal directly with uh, some of the religious elements of the inauguration of President Biden, and we hope will do exactly what you have called upon us to do, which is to reflect that critical awareness of the way in which we can engage the world and try to use the tools of our discipline in order to um, engage the world around us in a more thoughtful and uh, constructive way. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>